Hello, hello. What's up? What's good? Ni hao, bonjour. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, athletic, tenacious, dedicated people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. Happy, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to everyone. We have a wonderful 2020 recap episode for today featuring two of the greatest athletes that were featured on the Any Given Runway Show during 2020. First up, we have one of the most inspirational Olympians in the history of the United Kingdom. Two-time Olympian Derek Redmond is going to start the show off, followed by another spectacular athlete, another two-time Olympian, and a legend and one of the best to ever do it in the sport of softball, American Michelle Smith, is the second half of our episode. We begin with Derek Redmond, whose experiences at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics will never be forgotten, especially by me. Uh, he didn't win a medal, but his actions left an indelible mark on the games, and served as a reminder of the of what the Olympic spirit truly is. My conversation with Derek was uh, one of my favorites of the year. Uh, he, was, he was a childhood hero of mine, and chatting with him thrilled me no end. So we'll start off by sharing you a sample of my interview with Derek. To listen to the episode in its entirety, it was episode 39, first released April 27th. Now, the 92 games, personally, I feel probably are the greatest Olympics of all time because I think at that time, TV had kind of figured it out. There were no countries were boycotting. You had just a lot of stars with the men's basketball. It really felt electric. And yeah. just from the opening ceremonies and everything off the track, off the track, what do you remember just about that week? Um, I mean, I, I'd been there. I was there a month before the game started. So I mm -hmm. mean, my last month out there. And you're right to say it was up until then the best games ever. Yeah, and it was the yardstick for any other city hosting Olympic Games was always 1992. Yeah, uh, I think now everyone used the yardstick. Funny enough, as London um, <laughs> as, as a bit of the yardstick. Um, mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, but yes, you, you're right. It was great. Um, four years prior to that, you know, they allowed tennis in, so you had all the world class tennis players in there. Then you've got Dream Team, and my, one of my loves, as you possibly know, is basketball. So walking around an Olympic village, seeing all these world-class basketball players. And it, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. They did a great job um, in Barcelona. The the Olympic village was fantastic. Um, there was plenty of training facilities. It was, it was a real good buzz, um, uh, you know, about the games. Yeah. What do you remember most about the opening ceremonies with the, the arrow shot, which was just um, spectacular? Yeah. Well, the, what, the one that missed or the one that pretended to go in? Um, yeah, Both. I mean, the, the funny thing was, Ordinarily, I don't do opening ceremonies yeah. because a lot of time on your feet. True. And this sounds a little bit, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. It sounds a little bit rude, but I don't mm. mean it to be. But I find there's two types of athletes. There's those that I call trippers that are there for the trip. They've made mm. the Olympic Games. They've got their national kit and that's their gold, making yeah. it to the Olympic Games. And then you've got another group of people who are there to win a medal yeah so getting the kit and getting picked is only the start where for some people they're like yes i've made it True. for a lot and i put myself in the category of going for a medal so as much as the olympic games is a fantastic opportunity a fantastic experience for me it's also work yeah so um things like opening ceremonies are a bit of a hindrance because no True. athlete wants to be out in the blazing sun standing on their feet for hours on end because you have to be there so long before emotionally uh, draining emotionally draining i bet too 
and, and a bit physically draining as well. So, but I, for some reason, I decided to do this one because I hadn't done the previous um, opening ceremony at the last Olympics, and I thought, do you know what, I have to experience it. I know I'd regret it later on in life if I didn't do an opening, you know, uh, and or a closing ceremony. Um, so yes, I, I remember that. I remember seeing all the athletes, and I just tried to soak it in. I remember I, because the problems I had was my Achilles tendon, mm-hmm. and I actually had two mini portable tens machines hooked on my trousers and, and the leads were running down the inside of my legs and they were connected to because i was just trying to keep those you know keep yeah. the, the play and stuff yeah and it was a great experience and you know it is it is a, a bit emotional being in you know in the stadium as they call it, in the countries in and you know uh, so i i did enjoy it um and it was yeah it was a great spectacle it's it's you know it's literally the start there's no going back you know the the the, the flame the cauldron's been lit everybody's there the games have been declared open there's no turning back it's now put up or shut up type thing so it's quite a cool symbolic feeling yeah. for the guys who are taking part um compared to what you see if you're watching it uh you know at home yeah and this was such a great time for a united kingdom's track and field team again with linford christie and yourself we get to the race Feeling your strongest, you're feeling great. Probably headed for a medal at this point. Semi-finals, you suffer the horrific injury. So what happened next? Well, it was yeah. Uh, I mean, just to go back a little bit. I mean, you're right. I mean, I I was there a month prior and I'd had mm-hmm. these these problems. And literally each day as it went on, my training improved, improved. By the time it came to the first round, I was pretty much in world record shape. I'd yeah. run a uh, a time trial which i always run a few days before um over 300 meters and i almost broke the world record hand timing admittedly but it was pretty close to the world record so we knew i was in good shape so walk the first round walk the second round and to be honest the semi-final was going to be a there i say a walk in the park yeah, yeah. Um, obviously what happened um you know happened and um you know when you say what happened next, I'm assuming from when the hamstring actually went. Hamstring goes, I grab the back of my leg, shout a few expletive you know, <laughs> words. Oh, I think I've pulled my hamstring or yeah. something similar to that. Um, and I obviously hit the deck and yeah, yeah. I'm rolling around. I'm really upset and um, frustrated, annoyed, upset, angry, you name it. Yeah. Um, and that only lasted for about 15 seconds, if that. Yeah, yeah. Because I remembered where I was and I was in the Olympic Games. Oh. And the thought that went through my mind was, because the qualifying procedure was, it was the, there's eight people in the race, it was the first four over the line to make the final. There's only two semi-finals. I remember thinking, if I get up and start running, because the guy's had about 120, 130 metres to go, and the thought that went through my mind was, if I get up and start running, I'll catch them and I'll finish in the top four. Yeah. And that made me get up and start hobbling. Um... So in my mind, I'm thinking I can do this. And I always explain to people, to be a champion, there's two things you've got to have right. You've got to be physically in shape, but you also need to be mentally in shape. Um, and I, you can't do one without the other. And I was yeah. both. However, physically I broke down, but at yeah. that point, mentally, I'm still focusing in shape. So I'm still thinking I can get up and start running. So I get up and start hobbling, and I hobble 50 metres, still thinking I'm going to catch these guys. They've all finished by now. Yeah. But it's got to the 200-meter mark. I'm halfway around. I kind of looked across to see if I was gaining on these guys. Once I 
realize I finished my mental side caught up with the physical side you know yeah. and react yeah so, um, and I just remember thinking I have to finish this race <sighs> what went through my mind was four years prior to that in Seoul I was I think favorite for the bronze medal and um, I snapped one of my Achilles warming up for the first round so I didn't even make it onto the onto the track for the first round so when I got to the 200 meter arc in Barcelona the thought that went through my mind is one I have to finish this race because I cannot be beaten by the Olympic Games again it beat me in 88 and I felt I could live with finishing eighth and being knocked out but I couldn't live with not finishing and that kind of went just whizzed through my head and I said you know what I'm going to finish this race um, even if it's the last race that I ever run and that was the if you like the motivation to me to finish because I didn't want to be someone who didn't finish because I could say for the rest of my life maybe in the Olympics yeah did you win a medal no I got knocked out in the semi-final I can live with that it's not yeah. what I want but it's better than saying well I didn't finish what I set out to do uh, and that's why I carried on running so I hobbled around the top then um, there'd been a few officials trying to stop me from mm -hmm. continuing um, medical people trying to put me on like a you know yeah. stretch or in a wheelchair all that sort of stuff um, and I wasn't having it and they soon began to understand that I was going to finish and then with 100 meters to go I could I, I could sense this person coming from the left and um, I was just about to fend them off and <laughs> got a very distinctive voice sounds a bit like Barry White and I heard my dad <laughs> just sort of say Derek it's me you don't need to do this and I remember just turning to him and obviously I'm quite emotional and I just said, yes, Gary, back into lane five. I'm going to finish this race. And I wasn't swearing at him, but yeah, I yeah. was just emotional and just swearing. And it came out that way. And he said, all right, all right, all right. We'll get you back into lane five. And we'll, we'll finish this race together. And I said, I can't believe this is that. And, then, and it was at that point then, I guess because there was somebody close to me, then that's when the real emotion sort of, sort of came out. Um, and then I guess the rest is what you saw. I just had to finish the you know finish the race um i mean from my dad's point of view the reason he came onto the track wasn't necessarily to stop me running but he was trying to stop me doing and inflicting more damage yeah to the ham because it was obviously it was a hamstring pull but we didn't know how serious it was and we had the relay to come five six days later so the idea was if he's okay maybe we can get him patched up to run in the relay so he was trying to protect the injury and not make it any worse uh, but obviously that's his sensible thinking i'm emotional and in a completely different atmosphere stratosphere to him from a you know from thinking straightforward and emotionally and i just had to finish the race so we said right well you know we'll just finish it together and yeah and we're down the home straight and four minutes 59 seconds later and then getting <laughs> and i finished <laughs> yeah i mean i'm getting emotional as i think about it and there's just so many things about it unique that I've, I've watched this hundreds of times and, and your father wasn't allowed at first and you were kind of shocked at first and and then as the two of you are walking someone up comes to the side and, and tries to almost like push you guys off and your dad kind of he kind of snaps at him and yeah. it was just there was there were so many things perfect about that and you know in those olympics you didn't win a medal but i think perhaps you accomplished something even more astonishing and many people won't remember who won the 400 no. that year or who won medals that year but you're an inspiration all these years there 
your name remains on. You know what? What does that mean to you? Uh, do you know? It's, it's quite funny you say this. So about a month ago, maybe less than a month. So my wife has this thing of calling me an Olympic champion. <laughs> so I'm not an Olympic champion because in order to be an Olympic champion, you've got to win a gold medal at the Olympic Games. And she says, yeah, but you are a champion. Yeah, I've been world champion. You've been champion, Commonwealth champion, beer, and you've competed at the Olympics, so you're an Olympic champion. So I said, no, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I said, look, with what you did, people will see you as an Olympic champion. Um, so I did this thing on Instagram. I did a, a, a poll to say, look, I put a bit of a message and said, do you think I'm an Olympic champion? Yes or no? And unfortunately, more people said yes than <laughs> said no. Um, and it's, it's a really weird feeling and situation because you, you're right. More people remember me than the guy who won it, Quincy Watts. Yeah. Um, and... You know, people don't even remember who won the semi-final, which was a good friend of mine, Steve Lewis. God, I was with him year before last out in, in, in California. Um, but people seem to resonate more with what I did. And I think also my dad played a massive part he in it. Did, I think yeah. People begin to... If it had just been me and my dad hadn't have come out, I don't think it would have had the same effect um, on the world as it, it did yeah. with my dad because it kind of brought it down to everybody's level because we you know everyone has got a father whether they're with us or not with us whether they're you know separated estranged or whatever but everyone's got you know that a parent and they could see that link between the parent and the 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 child in this case the son um and i think that was one of the things that kind of brought it home and made it real because you know it's an olympic games it doesn't matter whether someone comes first, second, third, or last. You've got arguably the best sportsmen and women in the world all in one place. All 15, 16, 17,000 of them in, you know, in the world, arguably. I mean, I know there's a few sports, don't they? But so you've got all these superhumans doing superhuman things. And even the people that finish last are still the best in their country. Yeah. So you've got the best of the best. Um, and I think people see that when they watch an Olympic Games, but then all of a sudden they forget that these superhuman beings are actually human beings, just yeah. like like you and you know you and me, like everybody else. Uh, and I think that episode, that incident, kind of brought that home, and it made people realise that they do cry, they do bleed, they do hurt, they do fail, they do suffer in the same ways that we do. Um, you know, uh, whether it's in the middle of Olympic Stadium or whether it's at home in Wisconsin in some little place that nobody knows or in yeah. London or whatever. So I, I think that's why it had such a, a massive effect on people. I, I, I 100% agree. I think it was just also just the timing. It was almost theatrical and poetic in the sense you would you'd ran part of it by yourself and then your dad comes down from the stands and the fact that the race was over and everybody's looking at you, it was just, it was just a perfect storm of circumstance it was really weird because obviously the last thing on my mind was all the people watching it on tv yeah. in fact the people in the stadium for my own personal stroke selfish reasons i had to finish the race yeah. um, the last thing i expected was to see man um uh, yeah. on there um i knew obviously he was in the stadium he was sitting next to my coach i knew yeah. he was somewhere at the 200 meter mark because they wanted to get my 200 meter split and my 300 meter split so they were high up yeah. so they could the, the split so we would talk about it and 
So they were strategically placed and they asked for tickets for that area. Um, so I knew they were there, but ordinarily on the day of a race, I won't see my coach or my dad yeah. uh, until after I'd run, after I'd raced in the back in the warm up um, uh, area where you make, there's a warm up track and then the main stadium. Um, and normally we meet there and then disappear back to the Olympic Village, grab something to eat, you know, have a bit of a chat about the race and this and that, get rubbed down from the physio, checked out all the usual stuff. Um, so I knew they were in the stadium, but yeah. and I knew roughly they were at the 200 meter mark, but I had no idea where they were. So it was, it was one of those things where after it happened, um, and I remember going back to the Olympic Village and I had an apartment. There was about six of us in the apartment. I was actually quite embarrassed because I thought, oh, my God, everyone's going to think, what a complete fool. What's this idiot? I had no idea how it was going to be yeah. accepted, for yeah. want of a better word. Um, and it was the following day that somebody brought uh, 20, 30 different newspapers from all over the world. Some I could read in English, some I couldn't. Yeah. And they all just, you know, I was on the front, the back, but it was just, and I couldn't believe the, the way that people actually reacted and, uh, to, to that situation. And I guess it could have gone one way or the other. What an idiot or what a, you know, <laughs> hero. So, yeah. and I, it wasn't, yeah, no idea. And I, I guess I'm lucky <laughs> that it yeah. went. What a fantastic story. Yeah. I encourage you to listen to the full episode, episode 39, to hear more about Derek's incredible life and the activities and sports that he got into after his Olympic career. Next up, we have American Michelle Smith, a softball icon. She's a former collegiate All-American, two-time medal-winning Olympian, international pro left-handed fast-pitch softball pitcher, and currently sports commentator. She played her college career for Oklahoma State University and was a gold medalist in the 96 and 2000 American Summer Olympic softball teams. She's been ESPN's lead softball color analyst since 1998. And in 2012, she became the first woman to serve as a commentator for a nationally televised Major League Baseball game. She's one of the best to ever do it, and we were lucky to have her on the show for episode 44, first released on May 4th. So let's go ahead and bring on Michelle. You were part of the 96 Summer Olympics in softball, a very important year because it was the debut of softball at the Olympics. When you think back to those Olympics, yep. when you think back, do you realize how that team would play an, an important role in the advancement of softball around the world? So you look back now, I think at the time, everyone was just super jazzed that, all right, we're an Olympic sport. You talk about credibility. And then, you know, with the U.S., making the team is so stressful. And then you're in the Olympics, and that's stressful. But I think you come through it, and you look back, and you're like, wow, this was really pioneering for women's sports, obviously for softball, but for soccer, it was the first ever time that soccer, women's soccer was in the Olympics. And if you look at the results of the 96 Olympics, women's basketball, women's softball, soccer, there were so many gold medals won by sports. And you know, then you start going back and you look at history, the history of women's sports really started to take effect when President Nixon signed in Title IX in mm -hmm. 1972. Yeah. But it took about 25, 24, 25 years for that funding to become available, for women's sports to be able to get to the point where they were funded properly. And if you played golf or tennis maybe in the in the 60s and 70s and your family was 
was wealthy. You could afford to, to play sports. But women's team sports really came about through the mid-90s. And, and being a part of that and being a, a gold medalist from the 1996 Olympics is one of the most proud moments of my entire career. So I love the fact that I, I got to be a part of all that. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Title IX because that's something that I think even when they signed it, they probably didn't envision the success that it actually would have because of with the Olympics. I think they probably were just hoping for small, small improvements, in, but we got massive ones down the road. The 2000 Olympics, only four years later, were very, very competitive. And it almost felt like the rest of the yeah. world was, was up in their game. All the different countries were, were better and all the sports, especially softball. How difficult was it to repeat as a gold medalist knowing that every other team was gunning for you, you had a big giant target on your back? Yeah, you know, if you look at any sport, it's hard to repeat. It's hard to repeat championships because, of, as you just said, there's a target on your back. Everyone's trying to figure out how to beat you. They, they're they learning from you, right? They're loyal. Why is this team so good? What do they do to win? And then, you know, it's just a lot of different things coming together. And then you exacerbate it when you start looking at, okay, in the Olympic Games, it's every four years. So keeping a core group of people together, getting the right additions, it's very tough. And, yeah, we, we lost three games in a row in Sydney in the round-robin play and very long, bizarre extra-inning games. We just weren't hitting the ball. And once our offense started to get going and we qualified for the medal round, we were fortunate to come back and win uh, and beat every team that beat us in round-robin. We beat them in the medal round. And that's really what the Olympics are all about. you got to win at the right moment. And that's it, really it's what all sports are about. You timing, right? You've got to win when you have to win. And if you lose, you hope it's at a time when it doesn't hurt you. And being a part of back-to-back Olympic gold medal winning teams is something I'm very proud of. People don't realize the dedication, the travel, all the missed birthdays, Thanksgivings, anniversaries, you know, Christmases, all the things that you miss because you're flying around the world around the world and training just to get yourself to be in a position to be ready to go once every four years. So it, it was it was pretty epic to be able to come back and win that second gold medal in Sydney. Uh, it was definitely an incredible moment. Now, and during that same time period, you were actually playing, you have a professional career in Japan. How did playing overseas change your view on not just softball, but professional sports in general? Well, I love that. Some of the best years of my entire career were the years that I played for Toyota Industries Corporation in Japan, and I played 16 years for the same team. I lived in a culture that was very different, right? Very, Japanese culture is very different from American and Western culture. I learned a lot. I studied Japanese so I could speak to my teammates. I understood their culture. It made me a better person. It made me a better ball player because it helped me realize that, you know what, my as Americans, a lot of times, or Westerners, a lot of times, we're, we're taught that we view our life on how things affect us, right? Our world is very, very viewed through the binoculars of our life. How is someone treating me? How is this affecting me? What's going on with my job? Everything is inward looking. And in and, and Japan, that culture is very good at being outward looking. How am I affecting someone else? How am I affecting my apartment building? How am I affecting my teammates, my work culture? And so you learn to view yourself through other people's eyes. And as you do that as an athlete, it, to me, it made me a better athlete. Like I said, a better teammate, a better person, because it helped me reach out and say, hey, 
I want to be the best teammate possible. How can I be a great teammate? Well, I'm going to help my teammates. I'm going to throw extra batting practice. I'm going to, I'm going to stay after and, and hit with my teammates that might be struggling. And, and so playing in Japan was as a human being, but as a, a professional athlete was some of the, the best, it was the best decision I made to go over there. And I think it's also part of what helped me become the, the best ball player I could be. Now, playing against Japan in the Olympics was hard because yeah. at times I was playing against my teammates and <laughs> playing against a lot of really good women that knew me because I played against them so much. So it was challenging as well, very challenging. Yeah, maybe while you were there in the Olympics the second time around, you were starting to second guess all that extra batting practice you were throwing to your teammates. So. <laughs> Now, exactly, you're exactly right. That is exactly right. It's like, oh man, I shouldn't have thrown all that extra BP. She's all over me right now. <laughs> During that time, you were you signed many autographs again, being with the same team for such a long period of time. But there was one autograph that you you you've mentioned that stood out. What was the one autograph that stood out? You know, it was always to the young kids. So I would I I throw a game in Japan, and maybe we didn't play well, we lost. I'd be so upset, and then I I I come out of the game um, out of the stadium, and there'd be a thousand little Japanese boys and girls, Misharu, and, you know, wanting my autograph and, you know, just wanting to talk, you know, practice some English with me, and um, and I would take pictures, and I'd sign those autographs, and, and I have to say, it immediately made me realize what what's important in life. It immediately put me in a position like, all right, you know, I, I didn't, my rise ball wasn't working as good, or maybe, you know, we, we lost the game that we shouldn't have lost, and you come out and you meet those kids and you're like, all right, everything's all right with the world. You know, they just wanted to, to, to be able to be in the same space with you to have your autograph, to see you write English, you know, <laughs> versus the, the kanji and the katakana that, that, that they write in. So, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's perspective in life that really helps helps you grow uh, as an individual. It helped me grow as an athlete. And, um, yeah, so those are some of the most special times uh, signing those autographs. And I, but I was one in particular that I read about, and I don't know if this is true, but you signed a car. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Okay. So, <laughs> yes, when you're talking about the most um, bizarre things that I've actually, <laughs> I've actually signed, yes. I have, um, I had a really, really big, uh, they call, they would call themselves die fans, which means big fans. Yeah. Um, and they wanted me to, to sign their car. And I was like, are you sure you want me to sign your car? I signed my, I was like, it might devalue it. They're like, no, 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 sign my car. And actually, like two years later, they drove it to another game and they wanted me to re-sign it again because it had faded a little bit. <laughs> so I've autographed a car. I've autographed uh, Louis Vuitton bags. I, you, I, I've, I've autographed some pretty interesting and some pretty valuable items that it, it, it surprised me when they asked me to. So, yes, <laughs> that's a good catch. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, in your college career, was almost derailed by a traumatic injury, and you had doubts yeah. on whether you're going to continue in the sport. How did you motivate yourself during rehab? And when times were at their worst, physically or emotionally, where did you find the inspiration? Yeah, that's a good question because um, I, I went through a really tough period in my life. I fell out of a moving vehicle going about 40 miles an hour, and of course, I ended up uh, injuring, severely injuring my left elbow, and they said I may would never uh, pitch again. You know, so when a doctor says you might never pitch again, it all of a sudden the realization that your identity, what you saw yourself as this, you know, dominating pitcher that got a Division One full ride scholarship, now is going to be yanked away from you. It made me look inward and realize, all right, I, I love this. I love what I do. Did I take this for granted? No, I love this. I am not going to allow a doctor to tell me what I can and can't do. So 
I found that inspiration just by honestly being stubborn and being making a decision that, you know what, I really like doing this more than I realized and that I don't want it to go away. I'm going to work as hard as I can. And, and then as far as how do you stay motivated through rehab? That's a really good question. Not a lot of people ask me that, but one of the ways that I did is I, I would look at my life through the lens again of other people, other people who were maybe paraplegics, quadriplegics, just didn't have the opportunity to do what I did. So if there were days that I was feeling bad for myself, I would be like, hey, Michelle, get up, get to the gym, work on your range of motion, work on getting your muscle back because I'm blessed. I'm blessed that I even have the opportunity, A, that I'm five, B, that I'm going to try and come back from this injury and, and prove that I can pitch again. Um, so I think at times it was some really tough self-talk. It was some really look in the mirror. All right, Michelle, put on your big girl pants and let's go get this done. And um, those are hard conversations to have at times. But, you know, anything in life that's of value, it, it can be hard at times. And you just got to you, you just gotta stay strong and, and get through those times. And that's what I did. Yeah, I, I like how you said anything in life that's it's, it's difficult. It's it's being comfortable, being uncomfortable, and it's those times where the growth happens. Now, Dodgers Braves. Dodgers Braves. When I say that, I know it means something. You were the first female analyst of an MLB game. For years, you've been part of the softball broadcast team. So how did your preparation, how was it similar for softball, and then what challenges were there for baseball? So that's a great question. Again, you've got really good questions. Thank you. Um, the, um, you know, for softball, we have to do a lot of our work ourselves. Depending on what school or what university you're at, the SIDs do a lot of work for you. But you have to really dig in and you have to know the right questions to ask. And and you have to know where to look for information. So while there's an SID, it's typically one SID. When you get to the professional, the MLB level, the amount of information that they give you is mind-blowing. Because... There is anything and everything, and they have so many people that are looking up statistics and history and giving you any bit and any nugget of information that you need. You can just ask them, and they'll find you the answer. Um, so it is very, very different. A lot of that is, you know, funding. I, I do have to say, though, because I've worked for ESPN for so long that the amount of change that our sport has made. I mean, even just 15, 20 years ago, there was there, a lot of schools did not have sports information directors. They didn't have the SIDs. So you had to find everything on your own. You had to go back and search records, and maybe there wasn't as good of a Google search, and, you know, back in the day, and everything wasn't online where you can find it now. So a huge disparity between the sports and, and, it, and obviously as well a huge disparity just in the time frame as well. Yeah. Do you remember who won that game? Uh, yes, I believe the Dodgers won that game. Okay. During that day, um, I'm sure there was a lot of external pressure about it, but for you, you probably treated it like another day. Was there additional emotions going on with that, or did you try to just stay focused on just being another day where you're announcing? Yeah, you know, because it was a one-and-done game, it was a one-off game, I kind of wish I would have had maybe five, six, or ten games with PBS to do that because... I think it would have it would have been viewed differently. When it's a one-off game, a lot of the questions it was more about me in the broadcast booth yeah. uh, and a woman being the first ever in the booth instead of 
saying, hey, there's, here's a game, and I'll guess, guess what a woman is helping call it. So I do wish there was a little more longevity to it than it just being a one-off game. But um, just to be there and, and to be in that booth was such an honor. And, you know, I, there was just so many similarities because there were ball players that I knew. There was that mutual respect. But when I walked into the locker room or I was talking with some of the, um, the pitchers, they're asking me questions. And it was funny because the producer and, and um, you know, uh, EJ, Ernie uh, Johnson, who is the play-by-play, who, you know, who I knew before from just different events and also from the Olympics, you know, he was like, he loved it. He was like, look at these professional athletes that are viewing another professional athlete. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. They were asking me questions. Hey, Michelle, how did you rehab from this? How did you come back from that? What's your mentality on you know, in this situation. So it was really, really cool to be a part of that and just to show that, you know, a lot of times mutual respect of athletes is not gender specific. It's yeah. just mutual respect of elite athletes. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, 50 years from now and the next generations won't even, won't even see it as a big deal, but it was definitely at the time it was very important. Now your softball resume, yeah. your softball resume is legendary. It's impeccable, but it might actually be the second most impressive aspect of your career. You have been an international diplomat slash ambassador for the sport. You've met with individuals all around the world to help grow softball and women's athletics. Why has this been important to you, and has it worked? Have you seen improvement in some of the surrounding countries? Yeah, you know what? I think it's important to give back. And again, I think it's just my my opportunity to have lived in Japan and, and realized that you know, it's not about me. It's about the next generation and then the, the next generation beyond that. And how can we make a difference? How can girls and women around the world have opportunities that, you know, a lot of times as Americans we take for granted. We don't realize as young athletes sometimes growing up that there are some women around the world that don't even have an opportunity to to go to school or to play, play games or play sports. And so I think it's really – I think for me it was really enlightening to be able to find um, find an opportunity for me to make a difference to women uh, and to help inspire women around the world. Even if they weren't um, softball fans, I think they, they know what the Olympics are. And being able to be a part uh, and be involved with someone who is in the Olympics is important for them. So that's kind of one reason why I did it. Uh, the other thing is because... You know, with diplomats and when you're talking to, to leaders of other cultures and other states and other countries, you, you have to be able to show them that there's value in, 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 and I hate to say this, but there's value in women because some cultures don't get it. There's value in allowing women to be strong and make a difference and contribute to uh, everything that's going on in their country. If you're 50, if 50% of your uh, population is not contributing to your economy, it's going to be really hard to have a strong economy. And so that sometimes it was just even talking about the economics of stuff. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting, um, but I feel very blessed that I had the opportunity to, to do that as well. Yeah, and that's an interesting take about the economy aspect of it. And some of the places you were at, they hadn't even allowed women weren't even allowed to have driver's license. So it was must have just been an incredibly... A conflicting time, but also probably inspirational at the same time. During all those travel, tra- international travels, what have been some of the experiences or memories that stand out? Just, I think culturally, when, culturally, when I was in Amman, Jordan, or in uh, the Middle East, the way uh, uh, 
you know, you greet people and how um, different cultures, you know, in Japan you bow and in the U.S. you know, we shake hands or, <laughs> you know, we used to, once yeah. we get through all this, hopefully <laughs> everyone's back to shaking hands. But, you know, um, in the UAE and, and some of the, um, the cultures in the Middle East that if men won't approach a woman to shake their hand first, if the woman reaches out to shake the hand, then they will. So it's just all these great little nuances that make us all so different, right? Life would be really boring if we were all the same. So I like to embrace our differences because that's what makes the world unique. That's what makes everybody a little bit different. And um, instead of everybody being the same or looking the same, and um, you know, so it's it's important to, to realize those things. So for me, that was one great thing. Um, the other was just how different homes are in different parts of the world, how different people live, what they eat, you know, all those little things that we do daily that we don't think about, you know, everybody, you know, in the States, we eat pizzas and burgers and, you know, all this American food, but you go overseas and, um, you know, rices and pastas are staples and just different things. So it's just, it's just interesting being able to dive into cultures, different cultures and understand and learn them. Um, so, and, and that's probably the, the you know, the 37,000 foot view of uh, some of my travel. I think that the, the other thing is just connections with people. You know, life is, life is about relationships and being able to connect with individuals, even if you don't speak the, the same language, it's just so important to be able to, you know, wear, uh, wear a pair of their shoes and, and walk in their shoes for a mile and, and understand what they're going through. Well, I think that's completely well said. You summarized the best aspects of travel. For me, when I travel, you mentioned connecting with someone where you don't speak the language. There might be very few experiences where the feeling is better than when you laugh with someone who you don't speak their language, they don't speak yours, but you can laugh about the same thing. It's just such an amazing experience. Yeah. It's, I, I'm addicted to that feeling. Are you, um, are you a reader? And if so, do you have any book recommendations? It's a good question. I'm a, I am not a good novel reader because I, I typically um, am exhausted, so I get into a couple pages and I fall asleep. So I'm a really good magazine reader okay. <laughs> or, or a short story reader or articles on the Internet type of a reader. I have been looking at a book about um, leadership in trying times and um, just with everything that uh, we're going through with the coronavirus pandemic and, and how you know life has changed a little bit and how important it is to be a leader and be positive, uh, but um, I haven't gotten into that book as much as I want to. So for me, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm not as much of a, of a reader. I have read um, some very good books that have... Uh, have given me perspective on different ways different people lead. You know, I, I obviously have a leadership view of being on the ball field and, and my team and, um, and and what you go through together with those teams. So I like to try to read uh, points of view, um, you know, who moved my cheese or whatever it is. You know, I could go on all these iconic books that have been popular over the years uh, just to, to, to understand how different people view what they're going through and how important their leadership is in different ways. Michelle, what a legend. To hear the full show, check out episode 44, first released on May 4th. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento.